Good morning. I, it's an honor to be your guest preacher this morning, albeit on a day when among the texts are some of the most difficult in all of Scripture, nevertheless, some of the most important. So I'm delighted to be here and look forward to joining with you in the exploration of God's message to us this morning. Let's speak with God as we begin. Gracious God, we thank you for life, for the capacities to think and feel and decide and act. We thank you for our lives to live this very October, fall, Sunday morning. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that in baptism you not only draw us unto yourself, but you give us to one another and to the world. We thank you this morning for the goodness of another's being, another's presence, another's voice, another's hand. We ask your forgiveness when we violate these gifts. We thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather, to draw strength from one another, and to turn and face the world, enjoying your gifts and passing them on to others around us. We ask you now, as we step into the depths of your word, that in all of the power of its honesty and its grace, you will heal and inspire. In your name we pray. Amen. Children's specialists often say, everything you need to know, you learned in kindergarten. And if one goes to the hallways of where children are taught and cared for, one may well find a poster in which that phrase is unpacked. Share. Play fair. Be kind. Don't hit. Don't take that which doesn't belong to you. The message is clear. Respect yourself. Respect the other. And contribute to the good, the right, and the beautiful that might be the world in which we live. It's not only with children that we explore goodness, rightness, and beauty. We talk about families and we say, we want good parents so that we can have good families. We talk about marriages and we talk about being good spouses so that the marriages might be healthy and thrive. Our nation, when it seeks soldiers, speaks of wanting a few good men or a few good women. We speak of our public officials and we want them to be trustworthy, honest. We want them to contribute to the common good. And at the end of it all, as we bury those whom we love, do memorial services for their lives, we regularly use the phrase, she was a good woman, or he was a good man. Ours is a society that values and celebrates the good, the right, and the beautiful. 
This morning as we came to church, we were greeted with anything but the good, the right, and the beautiful. In a long text, we're introduced to an episode in King David's life. King David, who had been the young, responsible shepherd boy. King David, who had been the courageous soldier facing Goliath. King David, who was the one that God selected and anointed as king. Now we have that King David violating and breaking one good and right and beautiful boundary after another. And we're introduced this morning to a disgusting, bad, and wrong, and ugly episode in the lives, in the life of one of God's chosen people. So why look at it? Why read it in the sanctuary? Why speak it in the presence of one another across the generations? Is it possible that in this text we might learn something about what in fact is bad and wrong and ugly in David's time, and perhaps even more importantly, among us, around us, and perhaps even in our own lives? Could it be that this morning we have opened for us an opportunity to learn about that which is violation and destruction and tears life apart? More importantly, the story this morning does not end with David and Bathsheba. The story ends with an encounter between one of God's spokespersons, God's self, and David, the one who has done the bad, the wrong, and the ugly. So let's take it up and see what we can learn. The story begins in the spring of the year, a time when the Israel, the Israeli army is off to war against the Ammonites. But David, the warrior king, is lollygagging back in the palace, lying on his couch. We discovered that late in the day, he arises from his couch and walks on the rooftop of the palace, taller than other buildings, so he looks down at the houses in the courtyard. And there he discovers an exceedingly beautiful woman who is bathing. And he becomes fixated with her and uses his power to have one of his people investigate who she is. And he discovers that she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, one of the prominent Jerusalemites, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. In spite of discovering that she's married, he has her brought to him, and he lies with her, and she gets pregnant. And now he has an event of public embarrassment. What's the king to do? Well, David uses his power, and he sends out to the battlefield and has Uriah, her husband, brought back to Jerusalem. His thinking is that He will be back for a couple of days. He will be at home, and they will sleep together, and there will be an explanation for her pregnancy. But Uriah is a man of integrity. In a war with his comrades, 
Now he sleeps not at home, but in the barracks of the army of Israel. So David's cover-up does not work. And so now David must take his machinations yet another step. And he invites Uriah to the, to the palace and gets him drunken and thinks now he will in fact go home. But Uriah sleeps again in the barracks. And now David becomes desperate. What is he going to do? He does not want to be embarrassed in the, with, with the public as the king. And so he concocts a plot whereby Uriah in the battle will be put in the forefront of the lines. And once there, the rest of the army will back off and Uriah will be left alone and he will be slain by the Ammonites. Uriah carries the instructions himself as he heads for the battle lines. He gives the instructions to Joab, who, who is complicit in David's cover-up. And so, in fact, it happens. Uriah is placed in the front of the battle lines. The army recedes, and the Ammonites slay Uriah. And then David adds to his complicity, and what he does is when the word comes back from the battle lines via Joab, he takes another man's wife to be his own. And we come to the end of a story that sickens us, that's despicable, where rather than the good, the right, and the beautiful, we have over and over again the wrong, the bad, and the ugly. Now, if the story ended here, it would be terrible and sickening, but it does not. If we keep our ears open this morning, we can hear this story going down across the centuries in the newspapers and the news reportings of our own time. If we look out around us and among us, we discover the abuse of power, the violation of sexual boundaries, the in fact concoction of cover-ups, and we become as we listen to it, jauntist by a world that's marked, not just in David's time, but in our own, not by the good, the right, and the beautiful that hangs on the walls of kindergartens, but the bad, the wrong, and the ugly that in fact floods our newspapers. It is a hard word. It is a difficult text. These are difficult times, and our news itself creates in us a certain kind of despair. But the story does not end there. We picked up the story this morning in the text with Nathan, one of God's spokespersons, speaking truth to power. He approaches David and rather than confronts him front up, and makes him defensive, he comes alongside of David and picks up on David's best sense. There was a man who was rich and had flocks. There was a man who was poor and had one lamb. And a visitor comes to the rich man, and the rich man having options, rather than take one of his own flock, takes the one lamb the poor man has, slaughters it, and gives it to his guest. As David listened to the story, his sense of that which is good and right and beautiful returns, 
And he becomes incensed at what the rich man has done and says he should surely die and that the lamb should be replaced fourfold. And in that moment, in the encounter of the Spirit, Nathan looks into his face and says, David, it's you. You are the one. You have done this. It is your act that you are, in fact, condemning. And in that encounter, something turns. David's heart is cut to the quick. And now he realizes the import of what he has done. And he's ashamed. And he recognized the lack of integrity in his being. And he opens his life to be, re, to be honest about his responsibility, to speak about the wrong that he has done, and to seek God's presence, forgiveness, and new beginning. The psalm this morning is a gift. Dear friends in Christ, whether you and I take the wings of the morning or fly and fly to the, the heights, or we take the road of the night and walk into the depths of deepest despair, the good news of God's spirit is that God does not back away from truth. God will go there with us and be there. God will not brush over it. God will be honest and direct about it. God will cut to the truth of it but God will also speak these words of I love you, you are mine, I care for you, you can be renewed, you can heal. We participated a bit in it this morning. We have a movement that is a pathway, not only for David and us, but also for our society and our nation. It is contrition, being honest, and taking responsibility for our actions, speaking honestly and directly with those we have injured about the wrong that we have done, knowing that we can start life over again, that we, not, we need not be a slave to the bad, the wrong, and the ugly, which is taking place around us. We can be absolved, cleansed, made new. And then the fourth, our actions, when we do that which is bad and wrong and ugly, have consequences. They did for David. The child that was conceived in his misdeed died. And David had to deal with the struggle in his family his whole lifetime. The fourth step is to restore insofar as it's possible. Healing and new beginnings to what we have done. And the fifth is amendment of life. Dear friends in Christ, out of the story this morning, there's a pathway to renewal for persons, for communities, for nations. Contrition, confession, absolution, restoration of life, and amendment of life. Let me take it as I close to my own life. Strange little story. As a young man, working as a leader at seminary, having responsibilities to administer teaching and doing research, my days were packed. 
And I thought what I was doing was important. So I remember one winter regularly saying to Sherry, my wife, when we had little children, I'll be home at 6. And then something would take over my time, and I would come home at 6.15 or 6.30, or sometimes a quarter of 7. I remember one of those nights, I came to the door at a quarter of 7, and she met me in the doorway, and she said to me, where have you been? And as she spoke to me, I became defensive, and I said to her, I've been doing God's work. Well, it didn't help. As we sat down to eat dinner, more was cold than the food. And three nights later, we're lying in bed, and there's a mountain between us as high as the ceiling. She's thousands of miles away from me, and I'm lying on my side of the division, wondering, when is she going to take care of this? <laughs> Not honest. And finally, it dawned on me, I was the one who had said, I'll be home on time, could have called and didn't, and consistently came home and said to her, essentially, you are less important than I am. And so I turned to her in the night and said, I know that I have hurt you. I know that I've said one thing and done another. If you will let me, might I start building a bridge back across the mountain, over the chasm, and see, in fact, if we can restore integrity to our relationship. And so she turned to me, and now she had a decision to make. Am I open to joining him in renewal or not? And as she reached across the bed and took my hand, absolution became real. And in the struggling days that lay after, I discovered that there were ways to speak into her life and say to her, you are important, you matter. You are more important than anything else to me. And as I looked in the mirror and that person looked back at me, I had to ask, Raleigh, what is it about you that leads you to put yourself before other people, especially your wife? How do you go about amending your behavior? Dear friends in Christ, the David and Bathsheba story is our story. And Psalm 51 is our song. And the pathway to forgiveness and new beginnings is our pathway. And so the good news of the gospel this morning is that you can go from this place and start anew. You can go from this place and be a person, be in a community, be in a state, be in a nation, be in the world where the bad, the wrong, and the ugly need not reign, but the good, the right, and the beautiful can begin over and over again. Thanks be to God. Amen.